Well, I'm still um, kind of coming off the high of last week's Pentecost Sunday. That was so awesome. I mean, the worship was pretty good, but the food was incredible. And I think we totally upped it from the year before when we did this. I... It was so delicious. But that being said, I am also really excited to get back into the series that we started a few weeks ago called How to Follow an Invisible God. And if you're visiting with us this evening, or maybe it's just been a while and you can't remember what that series was about, let me just kind of recap it before we get going. Uh, ever since we celebrated Easter Sunday, we've kind of been looking at the, the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And then eventually Jesus ascends and goes to the Father. So his physical body isn't on the earth anymore. And uh, kind of begs the question, after 2,000 years, how are we supposed to have this relationship with Jesus? How are we supposed to follow a, a God that we can't even see or can't hang out with? We can't take him for coffee and ask him the secrets of the universe. Well, fortunately, before Jesus ascended to the Father, he gave some great teaching, some great instruction about how to get on without him when he's not physically there. And uh, a great section of that teaching is John chapters 13 through 17. We see uh, in that area of Scripture that Jesus has not only gone to prepare a place for us when we die, uh, but he promises God's presence in, in the person of the Holy Spirit even now. Um, we see that the Holy Spirit is living in each person that puts their faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit teaches us the things that Christ taught, brings to our remembrance, our identity of who we are. And the Spirit equips us to do the things that Jesus did and even greater things, to have greater impact around the world. So this evening scripture is going to be talking about exactly how do I relate to Jesus and what is it to remain in him. And so if you'd stand with me, I'm going to read John 15 verses 1 through 8. John 15 1 through 8. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Lord Jesus, you put so much emphasis on fruit bearing and abiding. Remaining in you. I pray that what we're about to do in engaging your scripture, your word, would open up new possibilities and that your spirit would come and teach us and draw us and give us grace in abiding in you. That we would be fruitful people. So come, do a work in us, Lord, as we sit under your word. Master us through your word. Amen. You may be seated. 
So kind of a familiar text for some of you, I'm sure. Uh, the vine and the branches, John 15. Uh, there's two ways I think we need to approach the text this evening. And first of all, we're going to look at how and why Jesus uses this metaphor of a vine in the first place. I think that's an important step one. Then step two is we're going to explore what it means for us to be branches. If Jesus is the vine, what does it mean for you and I to be branches? Ready? Okay. Notice how Jesus begins his teaching. He doesn't say, I am a vine. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now, it may not seem like much, but when we consider the breadth of Scripture, the entire Bible... We notice that this vine imagery is actually very common. And especially in the Old Testament, the metaphor of the vine or the vineyard comes up over and over again. In particular, Israel is referred to as a vine in the Old Testament or God's vineyard. In fact, in Psalm 80, the psalmist reminds Israel that God brought them out of Egypt. And he says, I brought a choice vine. He uprooted it and transplanted it into the promised land. And the intent of this transplant was for Israel to grow and to flourish and to live such a life in close relationship with God that other people in that land would say, wow, look at what lives they live. Look how joyful and creative and loving and righteous. And what is the reason for this life? To which, of course, Israel was supposed to say, it's our God. He's done this for us. Come, worship Yahweh. Now, if you've read your Old Testament and New Testament too, that, that didn't happen very well. There's a couple of bright moments. There's a, a, a spot in Solomon's reign, for example, where the Queen of Sheba comes up and she's like, you are so wise and you have so much stuff. And, and, and yeah, it's my God, but that didn't last very long for, for Solomon. So here's what happened. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this metaphorically too, and Rachel did a wonderful job reading that text, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. And he speaks of God planting a vineyard, okay? He prepared the land for this vineyard, he moved out all the stones, and he builds this watchtower, and he builds a hedge around it, and then he even gets so far ahead, he digs a wine vat, because he just knows this vineyard is going to produce fruit, and he's going to have his party and, and wine's going to flow, which is just a, another metaphor of God's blessing coming onto the land, okay? So Isaiah writes about this. But as it turns out, this vineyard that was supposed to produce these wonderful grapes produces yucky, worthless grapes. So God breaks down these walls, the, the hedges, and allows foreigners to come in and, and any animals that want to come and trample on the vineyard. He withholds the rain from it and it begins to shrivel up. Isaiah then goes on to explain, hey, this vineyard is you, Israel. It's you. And this judgment is upon Israel because she did not produce the, the, the fruit of justice and righteousness and compassion and love. And said, if you were to keep reading Isaiah 5, it talks about how the people were oppressing the poor. And that some people were getting extremely rich at the expense of the poor and the marginalized, and then they were attributing their blessing, their riches, to their own skill and their own wits, and they were, they were not giving credit to God. 
So the vine, Israel, the vineyard, had failed in her and her sentence was captivity by foreign nations. And that's where you get this Babylonian captivity. And there's Israel in captivity. And again, God comes to Isaiah the prophet and says, It's not always going to be like this. I'm going to give you a word of hope. And God promises salvation and He says, A new shoot is going to rise up from this dead place. Okay, now enter Jesus. Jesus, who comes proclaiming to be the salvation of the world, who comes fulfilling these ancient promises of God as a man in the first century. And now, this Jesus is claiming to be the true vine. Huh? Trying, claiming to be the true vine. The one who would do the things Israel failed to do. Israel was supposed to be obedient to God, to bear fruit by leading others to God. And now Jesus is saying, that's my role. I'll take on that responsibility. Jesus is the new Israel, the way, the new way to God. Just like he said a chapter earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, all that may seem a little hard to follow. I know some of you may have appreciated it. Some of you are like, keep me awake, Chris. So, here's the good news. If Jesus is the vine, right? If he is the new Israel, if he is the new way to God, then I have to live a perfect life. No. Then you have to make sure that you just have to do more good things than bad things. That's No, that's not it. Then you, you have to make sure that you've got to pray enough and come to church enough and read your Bible enough and give enough money. That one's really important. And suffer enough. And then, is that? No, that's not the good news. The good news is that if Jesus is the true vine, if he's taking on the responsibility that Israel had on himself, then the way to live fruitful, meaningful, vibrant, abundant life in fellowship with God is to do one thing, to stay connected to that vine. To stay connected to that vine. All right, see you next week. Uh, I know that would be kind of nice, but uh, th there's, a, there's a little bit more. <laughs> I'm sorry for those of you who thought I was super serious. Uh, there's more. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? He who abides in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that part's really important. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just, that's going to bear on the rest of the message, like verse 2. Listen to this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. Now, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And later on it says, all those branches that he takes away, they dry up and they go into a fire. So you know what automatically goes on in the mind of Chris Eldridge as he's studying this this week, right? I better figure out what fruit is so I can be fruity and not get taken away. I mean, that's exactly where my mind goes. So let's entertain this because I bet you're kind of struggling with that too. It's a fear-based reaction. If the non-fruitful branches get taken away and burned up, I don't want to be one. So I want to figure out what fruit is so I can do it. All right. So... I start looking into what fruit is. What is this fruit Jesus is talking about? In the immediate context of John 13 through 17, we know some of the examples are loving Jesus, which translates into obeying 
Jesus' command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to simply but difficultly love your neighbor as yourself. Did you hear that? Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So how are you doing at that? Yeah. Um, me neither. So the Apostle Paul uh, has this good list about fruitfulness too, and it's in Galatians 5. It's a very familiar uh, text. In fact, um, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, it's a great list of what fruitiness is like. And I like Eugene Peterson, what he's done on the message in freshening this up. Let me read this to you. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our life, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others and exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates all things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Now I'm going to read this list of fruit one more time. And what I want you to do when I read it is to pick out one of the pieces of fruit that you particularly feel like I would like to grow in that fruitiness. Okay? Here we go. He brings gifts into our life, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates all things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments not needing to force our way in life, and able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. All right, if one of those speaks to you, imagine yourself trying to grow that fruit this week when you, when you leave here. Trying to make it happen. Let's say I pick serenity. I will grow in serenity. I'm trying to grow in serenity now. You think you can do it? Not for very long. Not for very long. But notice how this says. Listen to the quote. What happens when we live God's way? This is what happens when we live God's way. He brings gifts into our lives. He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. These are both passive terms. God is the one who brings. I don't bring the gifts into my life. The fruit just appears in the orchard. It's not something that I've done with my own effort. In our text this evening, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself... Unless it abides in the vine, 
so neither can you unless you abide in me. So when Corey and I lived in the Bay Area, we were only 30 minutes from Sonoma Valley. And we learned a fair bit about wine and vines and things like that. And um, many of the vineyards there are grown under these hillsides. They get great sun most of the day. These hillsides are shaped like crescents sometimes. And the topsoil is always very good. So what they do is... um, they use a wild rootstock of a vine. This rootstock is hardy, and it can go into that soil and actually give life where uh, most vines cannot. But it produces nasty grapes. So what they do is they graft one of the better grape-producing vines into that hardy rootstock. So there's this relationship. The hardy rootstock is able to give nutrients from the soil up to this wonderfully uh, productive grapevine. And the entire job of that grapevine is to remain grafted in the rootstock. For us, bearing fruit is a function or a result of remaining in Jesus. Bearing fruit is not something that we earn or it's not something we can do to earn favor with God. Bearing fruit is something the Spirit of God does in you and I when we abide, which means to trust in Jesus. My main job is to remain connected with Jesus. Frank, my main job is to remain connected. I didn't mean, let's repeat that after me. My main job is to remain connected to Jesus. One more time, loud. My main job is to remain connected to Jesus. All right. So how do we remain connected? How do we abide? Two main ways. There's probably more, but two seems memorable. And you can write these down. First of all, community of believers. Community of believers. Jesus chose to do much of his work in the world... Through the church. The Apostle Paul calls the church the body of Christ. So we are each appendages, if you will. I don't know, silly analogy sometimes. But we're appendages of the body of Christ. So if I'm a finger, I don't last very long. You ever seen a severed finger? You're supposed to put it on ice, but not right on ice, right, Emily? Like between... Emily knows this stuff. But it doesn't last very long until it gets sewn back on the body, right? So we're not very good on our own. Let's stop with that analogy. (laughs) The bottom line is we need each other. We need each other, all right? There are no Lone Ranger Christians, at least on purpose. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. And whether or not you actually like every aspect of public worship on Sunday, which you probably don't, like it's not designed with every single person uh, in mind. I don't necessarily like every aspect, okay? But whether or not you actually like every single aspect of what we do here on Sunday, it's important to be in community, to be reminded of the story of God, and to place ourselves in that story on a regular basis. And I don't mean... 
twice a year regular basis or even once a month regular. But more often than not, it's really important if you want to remain in Christ to remain in the body of Christ. And I know that a lot of times we can rationalize that and say, well, I, I hang out with my Christian friend for coffee for every week, so I don't need, I don't need church. There, there is something significant about what we do when we gather here and we sing together, pray together, and we hear the Word of God preached together. And I would say the food afterwards is really important too, but <laughs> it's important for us to remain in Christ through community. We need each other for encouragement and for insight. And let me just say this. This is the ideal. What I'm talking about is the ideal. You will not find encouragement from every single person in your local church. This is not going to happen. Certain personalities don't mesh. Now we should always show each other love and respect. But you're not going to be best buddies with every single person. But we need the perspectives of each other as iron sharpens iron. We need people of the Word to speak the Word to us. People we trust and know have our best interests in mind. It's a lot easier to speak a word of truth to somebody who you already love and they know you love them. It's a lot easier to receive a hard word from somebody if you know that they actually have your best interests in mind. We need to call each other on our own crap. I need that. I need that in my life. I'm glad I have people that aren't afraid to say what they need to say. I'll just keep that to myself. Frankly, you can't live this kind of abiding life just by showing up on Sunday. We have to make an effort, really have to make an effort to be involved in each other's lives. In fact, one of our core values at Lettered Streets is to live an integrated life together, a, a, a life of shared worship, which you're doing right here, a life of friendship, service, and study. And a lot of times that's played out in our service projects and hanging out with each other you know, outside of church in small groups is an intentional way of doing that. So abiding in the vine has an aspect of Christian community. All right, That's one. The second way to abide is a personal relationship. And this is where you as an individual relate to Jesus, the vine. All right? Now, there are time-tested ways of relating to Jesus. Stuff like Bible study and prayer and silence and solitude and fasting and service, etc., etc. But there is no one right way. There is no one right way for you to remain in Christ. And this is where a lot of people feel guilty. We hear about, oh, this person I know, they pray for three hours every day. Uh, or that person I know, they're basically a monk. They've just sold everything and I could never live up to that. And so we get discouraged and we give up. Because comparison, comparison with other people absolutely will kill your spiritual life. Comparison with other people will absolutely kill your spiritual life. I'm not saying we shouldn't look up to people. And, and, and you know, I, I love biography. I love to be challenged by people. You know, the other thing I love about biography, I've never read a famous Christian man or woman in a biography. I've never read a full biography where that person's flaws are not also laid out. 
Okay, and that is just as encouraging to me as their strengths. Because if you ever hold somebody up on a pedestal, and you think they have no flaws, and that you're, it's, it's, first of all, it's not true, and second of all, you're just going to get discouraged. So don't compare with other people. And listen, this might sound cliche, but there are seasons that we go through in life that bear on the way we connect with God. There are seasons we go through in life that bear on the way you and I connect with God. Before we had kids, this is an example, I was a morning person, and my pathway... To, the way that I connect with God best at that time was to get up early and have my coffee and my Bible. And Corey's not a morning person, so I would just have time. I would have space. An hour easy. I could just eat it up. We'll drink it up with my, with my coffee. Now, I'm still getting up early. But it's because my kids are crying at 3 and then 5 and then 6.30. And I'm still having coffee, but I'm spilling it on my lap. And I've got my Bible out, but Stella's drooling on it and ripping the pages out because she thinks that's fun. And I know it is, it is a little amusing and it sounds amusing. But it was a significant shift for me. I had to go um, in counseling and to see a spiritual director for almost a year to help get me straightened out to figure out... For me, what, what constituted quiet time anymore? What does abiding in Christ look like for me now that I am in this phase of life? Because it sure is different than before. And what I'm learning is that Jesus is always around and He's always available. And I learned that when I include Him in, intentionally include Him in the things that I love and enjoy, I am abiding in Him. You know, my Fridays or my day off, they're often my favorite day of the week, tied with Sunday. Not just because I had to say that. I really love Sunday. But my Fridays are my day off. I get to have the whole morning and early afternoon with just Sophia and Stella. And instead of fighting them or being resentful about the time I can no longer spend with God in silence... I am finding God in enjoying them. That might sound so stupid. That was a real struggle for me. Just the way I'm wired. Because I would equate my time alone with God as something valuable, and the other stuff was just life that got in the way. I'm just being real. So this doesn't mean for me that playing with kids is the same as reading my Bible. But maybe for this season, I remain in Christ without spending as much time doing the things I used to put such a high value on. So how can you abide? Students with crazy schedules, studying all weird hours of the night. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. People who are just busy working, doing life, playing sports, having friends. I would guess that for each of us, there's some wiggle room. There's some ways that we need to figure out some other creative things, some, like I did, starting to see my kids as a, as a pathway to abiding in Christ. And then there's some other areas where we, we could probably make some changes uh, to have more time to abide with Christ. And the place to start, no matter what phase of life you're in, is always, always, always with honesty. Be honest about how you're feeling with God. I'm feeling distant from you. Be honest with your sin. You know, it's silly. 
he already knows what's going on on your inside. And sometimes I notice that my sin will make me feel like this wall between me and God and I don't want to approach him. Or I think, now oh, he probably doesn't want to hang out with me. Nothing's further from the truth. Nothing's further from the truth. Be honest about where you're at. Your sin, your anger with God. That's kind of been a, a new area for me. Just admitting, like, I'm really frustrated right now. I thought things would be different. I thought this was going to happen, but this happened. What's up? And I'm not always right, but when I say it out loud, see, then God is able to come in and minister to me where I really, really am. Okay. It's not our job to produce fruit. Our job is to remain close to Jesus, to trust Him, to talk to Him, to listen to Him, to be thankful for Him. And when we remain, fruit will appear. I like that. Will appear. Do you notice how passive that is? God produces the fruit. And if fruit appears, well, life will go really smoothly. I was just seeing if you're awake. No, no, of course not. This is life. I just wanted to see if you're with me. Uh, if, we, if we are able to abide in Christ and we produce fruit, we're going to get pruned so that we produce more fruit. Now, I don't know a lot about grapevines, but I know a thing or two about rose bushes and cherry trees and apple trees because that's what we have. And in the spring, they burst forth with new shoots and runners, and it looks pretty cool in the beginning because everything's been dead, and it's like, oh, new life, this is great. But what happens is, if you don't control these shoots and runners, is all their energy goes to this new growth. And the point is, of a rose bush, is to produce maybe not a bazillion roses, but a few beautiful roses. And of my fruit trees, I want good fruit, not a lot of little tiny fruit or no fruit at all. And what it takes is pruning. Pruning, which we didn't... Yeah, we missed it again. Next year? It's right now. Right now. I actually did those roses last week, and they will do fine. Um, we got to prune that new growth. Because those will just zap the energy right out of the plant. Energy that's meant for fruit. Energy that's meant for flower. And I think that this really relates to us because our lives can get so fragmented, right? There's so many great options out there. Things to do. Habits that we think are going to bring us happiness. And what happens is we either get stagnant or we expend too much energy in the wrong directions. The Father wants to produce good, lasting fruit of character in us. And that's why the Father, the vine dresser, will prune us. And it hurts. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone. Pain wakes us from our spiritual slumber. It forces us to face reality. In fact, I can almost guarantee you that if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been pruned. Maybe you experience pruning and the loss of a job loss of a career or career change that made you trust Jesus more. Maybe it was a physical ailment that reminded you of your frailty and you had to learn some more humility and the necessity of leaning on others. Maybe you've been convicted of a specific sin or even been caught in a specific sin. But the result has been that you found healing and change. 
Pruning can take the form of modification of our goals and ambitions in life. God redefines what we think is so darn important. All of these things are used to wake us up, to show us reality. I don't get in better shape by wishing I was in better shape, right? Um, but I waited until too long, until I blew out my ACL. And that actually motivated me to get stronger and more flexible so that I could do the sports that I took for granted before. In the same way, I'm not going to get more patient by wishing I was more patient. Sometimes God puts me in situations that make my blood boil so that I can learn patience, dependence, humility. I want to leave you with the incredibly good news that God has chosen you and chosen us to invest in. He loves us so much, He died for us, and He took the responsibility of producing this good fruit on Himself. Okay? He's responsible for it. So, what we do is remain in Him. We abide in Him. And I just want to ask some questions as we leave that you can wrestle with. How are you abiding in Him lately? How are you abiding in Him? When's the last time you were pruned? Because pruning always nips, or always hurts a little bit. You don't want to waste that. So if you could write it down even when you go home, that'd be a great way to just use that learning experience. When's the last time you think you were pruned? And what is God trying to teach you in the pruning? Let's pray. It sounds so simple, Lord. Oh, just abide in you. Just remain in you and all this fruit's going to come and it's going to be great. God, we just confess our, our failure at this. It's so much more interesting to go and try and do the fruit stuff, to go and try and make things happen. I thank you for the people you've put in this body of believers who are passionate about mission. Who love to engage in work for your kingdom. But God, I don't want us to miss out on lasting fruit. I don't want us to, in the end, say, well, we did a lot of stuff, but it wasn't the fruit you were looking for. We did it with resentment in our hearts, or we did it to please other people. Triune God, I pray that you would release grace in us. To resist the urges to, to be so busy and to be so fast and to lose sight of you. Help us to be thankful and to trust that when we do a little less to remain closer to you, you're going to produce fruit. You're going to change our character. 
You're going to make us like yourself. Thank you that you became a man, that you walked on this place. You encountered the real human problems that we go through. You wrestled with those temptations yourself and yet did not sin. Help us to remain in you. The only one in the universe worthy.